BirdNote presents. What do we do when we've already screwed things up? It's the same old heartbreak in conservation. First comes habitat loss and then extinction. But there is a middle ground, a different destination, a kind of tenuous stopgap. You know you're in that in-between place when you hear words like captive breeding, reintroduction, path to recovery. But can a species that's raised in captivity ever fully thrive again in the wild? And what's being lost in the process? Enter the story of the Hawaiian crow, the alala. Producer and field biologist Jesse Eden is here to help us answer some of these tangled questions. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, thanks, Ari. Good to be back. Why don't you start off by telling us about this bird, the alala? Sure. Well, the alala are found nowhere else in the world but here in Hawaii. This Hawaiian crow, a member of the corvid family of birds, used to thrive in big territories nesting and foraging along the southern regions of Hawaii Island. They are ecologically and culturally important. Alala evolved mutually beneficial relationships with the plants and trees in their native Big Island forests. And for many native Hawaiians, alala are revered as an amakua species, a spiritual family and forest guardian. But the forest has gone through many changes over the years, and the alala have found themselves in a bit of trouble. Paul Banco is a wildlife biologist who studied alala in the early years. By the 1990s, the wild population had shrunk to about 12 birds. Wow, just 12 birds? I can't believe that. Yeah, pretty desperate times for sure. Forest ecosystems in Hawaii have been fragmented and damaged, and so the alala, like other native birds, have suffered right alongside their forests. Biologists and conservation experts wrestled with what to do. The plan was devised to take drastic action because the population is just about winking out. Drastic action. What, what does that mean in this case? Well, here it meant establishing a captive breeding program before the birds went extinct in the wild. And then when there were enough, they'd start to release them back into the forests. But there's a lot going on in between to make sure the alala born in captivity are ready to one day return to the forest. So birds that have been hatched and raised in captivity are not exposed to the same stimuli as they are in the wild. Sarah Malik Walls is the Alala Research and Recovery Coordinator with the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. They have to develop complex foraging skills that really can only be obtained through interaction with the environment in the wild. And Donna Ball is a deputy refuge manager and one of the biologists who studied alala in the wild. I have so many memories of like the birds sitting on the nest, the female incubating and the male coming in and feeding her. And just to watch through a spotting scope, you know, him push purple berries with his tongue one by one, like a pinball machine, into her mouth. They would pick, like, 
clusters of them fly off with a cluster of them land perch and put their foot on the cluster and just pick away like our equivalent would be us sitting down with a handful of grapes. Alala used to eat over 30 different types of wild fruits. Over the generations, they learned to take advantage of the seasonal foods ripening up and down the elevations, and they spread those seeds throughout the forest, helping it to regenerate. But how do you teach captive birds these kinds of behaviors? How do you even attempt to recreate something as complex as this ecosystem they used to be a part of? There's also a social structure for wild bird populations that's hard to replicate. Different relationships and family dynamics. Here's Paul again. They have a very strong sense of place, like many people do, and that, you know, very strong commitment to family and to just the day-to-day necessities of watching your partner's back. Sarah and her colleagues are doing their best to foster that natural alala behavior and learning in captivity. There's a socialization process that we're using at the breeding centers where birds are put into juvenile flocks to try to develop proper communication skills and and other things that you would get that are kind of intangible from interacting with a cohort of your peers. A large part of this is alala vocalizations. Each one is associated with a particular behavior, like territoriality and family connections. But alala have to learn language from each other. They're not born with all of this knowledge. So the research that Donna has done toward understanding alala communication and behavior has been invaluable to the efforts to rewild these birds. And Donna's really adept at interpreting alala calls. Practice calls. Okay, so they're just messing around? They're messing around. They're developing their repertoire. The juvenile birds can play with their vocalizations for a few years sometimes before they get the full adult expression of calls. Huh. Yeah. That's an adult call. Adult scolding calls. Definitely an adult scolding call. That's a baby. That last one. Oh, yeah. Wow, it's remarkable to hear all those different kinds of calls, Jesse. And it reminds me of the cultural transmission that we have in people, how we teach our children about how to behave, how to speak. And it seems like it's the same with these crows, that they're learning from their peers and other adults how to vocalize and how to behave. Yeah, absolutely. It is exactly the same process. But I have to imagine that in captivity, replicating that process would be somewhat challenging. Yeah, this effort to rewild these birds back into their native forests was always going to be challenging. So here we are already struggling to figure out how to raise forest-savvy birds in a captive setting. But let's add another layer of difficulty, shall we? Do we have to? (laughs) Unfortunately, the alala has a natural predator in the forest, the eo, the Hawaiian hawk. The eo lives here on Hawaii Island, and this Hawaiian hawk, it eats crow, literally. (laughs) 
The team tried anti-predator training with the Alala to teach these captive birds about the EO and how to avoid them. Like they played specific recorded Alala calls when a hawk was visible. They learned how to do this from conservation experts in Puerto Rico. They had a surrogate in Puerto Rico that they were able to sort of set up in a viewable situation as being an attacked bird. And the Puerto Rican parrots all got to observe it. So it was a very realistic scenario of actual attack. So what we tried to do with the Alala was something similar, but we didn't have a surrogate Alala to use. So it wasn't as a compelling a lesson for the Alala. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, what happens when the Alala are reintroduced into the wild? Stick around. Join BirdNote on Wednesday, March 27th for a captivating conversation about the power of photography. A panel of esteemed photographers will share their experiences, breathtaking captures, and insights into how stunning imagery can inspire action for birds. Plus, stick around to hear the winners of BirdNote's 19th birthday photo contest. Register for free at birdnote.org. So for 20 years, the Alala, these birds, have been living and breeding in captivity. And Jesse, it sounds like there are people who are really committed to giving them what they need to survive and thrive in those conditions. But the goal is to get them back out into the wild. So have they tried that? They have. Most recently in 2016, Rachel Kingsley leads outreach and education for the Alala Project. The conservation breeding population actually reached over 100 individuals. And so the partnership really felt comfortable with trying to get these birds back out into the wild where they really belong. But it's not just as simple as opening the conservation center doors and letting the birds fly free. First, the birds get to level up in a flight conditioning aviary near the forest release site. It's a bigger aviary specially designed to get the birds ready to be released back into the wild where they can get used to stretching their wings. And then, once outside... Our crew was also out there providing supplemental food for the birds... Supplemental food is one of the few support tools used to help reintroduce birds adjust to their new life in the wild. Helping them kind of transition from being fed on a completely daily basis to then having to transition to foraging on their own. And then the team prepared for some intensive monitoring of the birds. So each bird was outfitted with a radio transmitter that was attached to a harness, so they wore it kind of like a little backpack. That allowed us to be able to track the birds on a daily basis. We were trying to find out as much information as we possibly could about where the birds were going, what plants they were interacting with, all of that kind of stuff. With the excitement of this rewilding effort, community outreach stepped up. There was a big public event, you know, kind of celebrating these milestones of getting to this part in the whole story of Alala. The birds were even given names by local elementary school students. Oh, that's lovely, Jesse. Yeah, just so sweet. The students had studied alala behavior and biology in class, and they came up with Hawaiian names for some of the birds, like mele, meaning song or chant, and alohi, meaning to shine or sparkle. 
And then the day came. After all these years in captivity, Alala were released. The first group in 2016, and over the next three years, there were three more releases, 27 birds in total. Going out to the forest the first time and hearing their call or seeing them fly free, it was just mesmerizing. It was definitely, it felt right. Like this is how the forest should feel or how it should sound. And it just kind of changed the whole forest itself. Rachel and crew spent countless hours tracking the Alala through the forest, learning about their interactions, the places they were exploring, what they were eating. I remember a couple of times ohia were blooming, and I looked down and it was just this trail of ohia blossoms, and I was like, well, what, what happened there? Ohia trees are the backbone of most forests here in Hawaii, and they have these really stunning blossoms, little pom-pom bunches of stamens, typically a bright red. The alala will actually pluck the flowers and they'll kind of crush them and then they play with them for a little bit and then drop them. So you could kind of see this whole trail of where these birds were going and it was like following the little, you know, cracker crumbs kind of thing to be able <laughs> to figure out where the birds had gone just by seeing the ohio blossoms um, on the ground. One day, she was looking for a female alala whose signal was showing up right nearby. I knew she had to be close, and so just kind of walking in circles forever, it felt like, you know, just around and around and around, and finally I was just like, you know what, I give up. (laughs) Like, sit down, have a water break. Then I hear her, like, scratch her head feathers, and her bands clinked together, and sure enough, she was right above me, watching me the entire time. So it's just like, she didn't want to be found. They're quite big characters and they have big personalities. So Jesse, they introduced these 27 Alala back into the wild. And then how did they end up doing? Well, at the start, things really did seem promising. We had birds that paired up. They built nests for the first time in over 20 years. We believe that the female sat for an entire incubation time. The male was going up and helping provide food and guarding the territory. Other things that we learned and saw were, you know, really positive foraging behaviors. We were watching the birds learn to do things that we had never seen in the conservation breeding facility. The Alala were doing pretty well for a while, but then the team started to lose birds. We would get a certain signal with the radio transmitter that they weren't moving, um, so that would kind of trigger a red alarm for us. So our crew was going out knowing that they were probably searching for a body versus a live bird. What was going on? Well, some deaths the team understood and some remained mysteries. A few alala simply didn't fare well out there. In spite of the supplemental feeding, poor body condition was one of the diagnoses. Like they starved to death? Yeah. And another effort that didn't work was that predator aversion training. Sometimes the monitoring team would find alala bodies with telltale signs of an EO attack. All of this complicated by the fact that up until recently, the eel was listed as endangered. You know, you have another threatened endangered species eating an endangered species, so there's not much we could do. The alala and the eel, they evolved together. Here's Donna again. And I think in a properly 
operating ecosystem, that may not be an issue, but when the system is so fragmented and all of these introduced prey have been inserted into the scenario, rodents and game birds and losing the understory, it just gave the eel an edge. The understory in these forests consists of smaller trees and shrubs below the canopy. The loss of this tree cover made it easier for the EO to see potential prey. It was beneficial to them. It was made hunting easy. And the Alala, they're going to seek cover if they're pursued by an avian predator. You know, if there's no cover, then they're going to be at a disadvantage. Oh, my goodness. I mean, everything's just so tenuous. You know, everything's on the edge here. I mean, an ecosystem is this interconnected web. You know, this conservation effort of the Alala that you're mentioning, it's focused on a single species, but that species used to sit in concert with all these other dynamics. But everything is just so frayed that it sounds like a really difficult kind of regime to rebalance. It is. It's about all these little pieces of resilience and relationship that keep getting damaged. And then you have this cascade of loss. Mortality is kind of ramped up in late 2019. And by summer of 2020, we only had five birds remaining. Just five birds. The numbers keep falling. Yeah, absolute heartbreak. But as painful as it is, some losses of Alala were actually expected. The birds are still learning, and we're trying to teach them what we think they need to know. But sometimes that's just not enough. Only five birds remain out of 27 released to the wild, Ari. What would you do? Bring them back in, I guess? Yep, that's exactly what the team decided to do. The decision was to bring those five that still had some of that wild bird knowledge back into the breeding flock to be able to preserve that knowledge. They brought those five alala back into captivity again. It's always tougher than we think. We've got to check our hubris at the door. There's no we got this, you know. Nature is always so much more nuanced and elegant than we can recreate. We humans, we've done a serious number on these fragile island ecosystems, and there's no easy fix to the problems we've caused. So what are they doing? What's the plan now? Well, the team actually decided to hit the pause button on reintroduction efforts here. This is Rachel. It's just a very complicated relationship that we haven't quite figured out. We don't know everything about EO, so what we're trying to do is research more information to better understand how we can possibly put Alala into the habitats where EO exist. And in the meantime, they're exploring the potential to reintroduce Alala into areas without the EO. And luckily, the EO only lives on Hawaii Island. So they're looking to other islands, particularly Maui and the smaller islands that surround it, known as Maui Nui. Here's Sarah. We want to learn more about the EO and we understand that either Alala or a very similar corvid were in Maui Nui previously, and the forest could really benefit from having them back. So that's why we're now thinking about this next step. Everyone's continuing to work hard so flocks of Alala can thrive again in their native forests. Here's Donna. We can't fix 200 years of habitat loss and degradation in 30 
but we can do our best, <laughs> you know, trying to focus on the species that we can still help. I think the all loss still has a chance of, you know, some recovery potential, and maybe they'll get back to the island of Hawaii in the future and just keep trying to learn with each effort so that they'll still be with us in a hundred years beyond our lifetimes, hopefully. And if all goes well, eventually Alala will find their way back home again. The future for Alala is still uncertain, but in our next episode, we look at conservation efforts that have been working for a secretive little seabird called the Ua'u. This is where I'm happiest with these birds, and I sleep so much better when I know that my Ua'u is safe in its burrow. That's next week on our Hawaii season finale. This episode was produced by Jesse Eden and me, Ari Daniel. It was edited by Caitlin Pierce of the Rough Cut Collective. Audio mix by Sam Johnson and Mark Bramhill. Fact-checking by Connor Guerin. Our theme song and original music were composed by Ian Koss, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Threatened is a production of Bird Note and overseen by content director Allison Wilson. You can find a transcript of this show and additional resources, Bird Note's other podcasts, and much more at birdnote.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>